So we're back at it with episode 52 of the Bucket Seat Podcast. It's officially the second episode of season three, and in this discussion, I have a gentleman by the name of Ryan Lontane on the show. Ryan is an incredibly interesting individual who I came across in another automotive podcast. Go figure. It's called Maximum Driftcast. It's a show you can really easily find yourself being led down the rabbit hole of drifting in. And so Ryan came up as a person of interest to me through a lot of conversation about his role and involvement with the FIA and how it plays out in the motorsport of drifting. His clout in this role comes from years upon years of drifting and judging across the globe. He's been piloting his own drift car in a once upon a time, and generally, he's just a celebrity figure in the drift scene due to his tremendous knowledge and experience. If you've ever wanted a peek behind the curtain of drifting from one of the most qualified to reveal it, this is certainly going to be an episode for you. I'm your host, Trevor Byrne, and this is episode 52 of the Bucket Seat Podcast. All right, so we're back. Um, this is another episode of the Bucket Seat Podcast. I'm here for an afternoon show, which is a rarity for me, uh, with another fellow Canadian, Ryan Lontane. So Ryan's a precision driver, a formula drift judge, and a working member of the FIA. So welcome to the show, Ryan. Thank you for having me, Trevor. Okay, so before we get into all the things that you're up to these days, um, I'm going to start with uh, the beginning. It's where I start with all of my guests. And um I'd really like to know what it was that got you into cars. So what inspired or hooked you? I have to be my father, the way that uh, he was around cars as I was growing up. Mm -hmm. Pictures that I still have of uh, the two of us together when I was just, you know, very young. He had Camaros, Corvettes and things like that, Mustangs. So that got me into cars at a very, very early age. The one, I think, transformative um, experience that I had, uh, his cousin bought a Corvette there was something wrong with it. So he took it back to the dealership and they lent them uh, at the time an 86 Z28 Cor uh, Camaro. Oh, okay. And yeah. my dad said, well, let's go out and have some fun with that. So they did. And they took me with them and did donuts and all kinds of crazy stuff. And I think that's what sparked everything in, in, in me. I was very, very young, but I was on my cousin, my, my, I guess my second cousin's lap as my dad was doing all this crazy stuff in a car. And I thought I want to do that. And I have to somehow get my life to that point that I can do that. So my father had, I think the most influence possible on me that he could have. That's awesome. Um, okay. So on to then the first car that you ever owned. It would be a 1996 Hyundai Accent GT. Whoa. So a, real, a real weapon. Um, <laughs> but uh, that is the car that taught me everything in terms of car control. Really well-balanced car. It mm -hmm. would get into an oversteer situation quickly and easily. Yep. And I drove that thing I drove the wheel square on it basically. Um, seven years, I beat it up to the point where I thought it would explode, and it eventually did. Uh, <laughs> but it uh, stood up pretty well for a long time. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's always good to have a car, uh, like one of those introductory kind of vehicles that you can learn the thresholds of driving and understand yeah. kind of where, you know, traction brakes. And yep. uh, like you said, like understanding what oversteer and understeer end up being as well. Yeah, I was an aggressive teenager driving and. I think I was driving it at 10 tenths most time, which yeah. I shouldn't have been doing. Uh, and now and then I went to 11 or 12 tenths, which <laughs> ended up in some uh, negative situations, but definitely some learning experiences uh, were had in that car. And I think that people underestimate what you can learn in a front wheel drive car, yeah. especially one uh, like that, that had no stability or traction control, which today it's kind of hard on some cars to disable all of those things. But mm -hmm. back then 
yeah, it was just you. Yeah. <laughs> so I learned a lot. I can attest to that. I, it wasn't my first car, but I attended the Hatta uh, Auto Slalom School uh-huh. um, a long time ago in an EG hatchback. And I mean, I nothing was really done. The car was a, kind of a piece of garbage at that point. <laughs> but but driving a little front wheel drive car, uh-huh. um, something lightweight and also fairly low consequence um, and forgiving was it was what taught me a lot about car control at that point too. So hundred percent. So you know, and talking about the first car and. Um, you know where where did you where'd you grow up so where in canada were you uh were you driving this thing well i was born in toronto but we moved down east to new brunswick when i was about 11 or 12 years old mm-hmm. so i spent my i guess you could call it my formative years down there <laughs> which was great i had an atv i had the freedom to go drive it everywhere that i wanted to i don't think i would have had that freedom if i lived uh in toronto we lived in scarborough so it would gotcha. have been a little bit tighter in terms of upbringing yep uh, so it was very free um, friends had uh, field cars, I guess you could call them, where we just go beat the <laughs> yes. crap out of them. And, um, so I think in terms of learning how to drive, it was the best situation for me to just be in the situation where I was free to learn and make mistakes without a lot of consequences. So yeah, um, yeah New Brunswick and then end up in Montreal, um, at, at Alberta as well, Fort McMurray, which was a lot of fun <laughs> getting out of racing debt. Wow. So it took me up there and then no uh, kidding. Yeah, back, yeah. back to Toronto again. Holy. Okay. Yeah. Um, Okay, so was the was that also the first car you purchased? No, um, you know I haven't uh, owned a lot of cars just because of the the different um, industry that I'm in, being in the automotive industry. I travel a lot. I don't always need a car. Yeah. Um, I guess the first one that I would have purchased on my own uh, would have been we. I needed a Dodge Ram to tow my my race trailer. Okay. Yeah. This was in 2008, I guess 2007. So I mm-hmm. leased a, a Dodge Ram, um, which was a tool that I abused greatly. <laughs> uh, dragging my little race trailer around with my really heavy car in it and everything. So that truck worked a lot, but I, maybe that was the first, but it was an out of necessity more than anything. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So what was the, what was that, that, um, that race car that was in the back? It was a Pontiac GTO that we had built for BF Goodrich tires, Canada to compete in DMCC. So I had a 24 foot trailer and I had that big heavy car. It was over 3000 pounds. Yeah. Wow. Well over yeah. 3000 pounds. It's probably 3,800 pounds. Um, and then, you know, the wheels, the tires, the tools, everything else that was in there. Mm-hmm. So that poor truck worked a lot. Yeah. <laughs> now, was that, um, was that the first car that you started tinkering on? I mean, what was the first car you started tinkering on or do I, you tinker? Well, I got a, um, a skyline in, uh, I guess it was 2000 and must've been 2005, 2006. I got my first, uh, it was a GTST two door. Um, oh, nice. that we imported from Japan. It was part of a deal that I had with. Uh, a friend who started DMCC. I w- used to work for him. Uh, there used to be, uh, you know, when he was starting out, he didn't have a lot of money. He ended up making a deal with this importer to advertise in his magazine, which he also had mm-hmm. uh, to advertise at the the drift events. And I ended up getting a skyline for my work, oh, which was not a bad phenomenal deal. Phenomenal for me at the time. I was young, right out of college. I couldn't afford a car like that, mm-hmm. um, and it was the first car that I started to actually tinker on. As you say, you know, started to work on that car. I learned how to drift in that car. Uh, I ended up trading it for a four-door GTSD with a bigger turbo, which allowed me to do some demo drives for Yokohama at all the drift events. Oh, cool. Which Smart. Which yeah. led me to my competition uh, sponsor, which would be of Goodrich. So it worked out really well uh, the, in terms of the linear progression. Started off with a very low horsepower and, you know, it was just a two liter inline six turbo. Yep. They're only about 225 at the, at the crank, you know, so mm-hmm. not a lot of power um, in a probably what low 3000 pound car, but awesome chassis love the r32 uh chassis so that would be those were my first two cars that i guess that i really started uh, playing around with 
Wow. I think yeah. you might take it for probably in like the top five coolest cars that somebody <laughs> bought themselves or started tinkering with. Um, I, I lucky. So, okay. Also kind of that in, before that, obviously a different era, but um, what was the cool car that everybody had to have when you were in high school? When I was in high school, um, growing up in the East Coast where there isn't a lot of money necessarily, having mm-hmm. a car period was considered cool. That was yes, just that's... having a car in high school mm-hmm. was pretty rare. Yeah. Um, my dad ended up, I think foolishly, uh, buying a Camaro Z28. It was only a couple of years old at the time. Mm-hmm. And I used to take that to school sometimes. Oh, wow. And nice. I did not know what I was doing back then. <laughs> you know, I had beat up the accent quite a bit and uh-huh. I kind of knew how to handle a front wheel drive car, but a live axle, um, higher horsepower, I think it was 275 horse, three and a quarter pound feet of torque. Mm-hmm. And that LT1, um, I had no idea what I was doing. And I crashed it one day oh, no. at lunch going to McDonald's oh, with uh, a friend. So that was a rough day, um, but it got fixed and we moved on <laughs> and it, uh, <laughs> It gave me the, I guess, the the desire to learn how to handle a rear-wheel drive car. And uh, luckily, I ended up getting the Skyline later on and learning. There you go. Yeah. Okay, so now what is your daily driver um, or stable? of da- Some people have stables of daily. So <laughs> I um, wish I had a stable. <laughs> um, right now, I drive a Jeep Wrangler. Okay. And I got that a year ago, actually almost to the day, uh, to slow myself down. Because Fair. Uh, I was... Yeah, you're not going to go fast in them. Very irresponsible person. Uh-huh. And uh, I have no self-control. <laughs> so I had an E36 M3 uh, up until last December. Mm. And uh, Pat Sear um, would tell you that they are called BM Trouble Use for a reason. <laughs> that thing gave me more trouble than I care to admit. And uh, But when it worked, it was phenomenal. It was British Racing Green, and I love that thing. But um, I did find that I was um, being a little irresponsible with it on city streets. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I'm either going to get myself in trouble or hurt someone or myself. And, uh, and it's giving me trouble. Uh, I do travel a lot. And when I'm home, I need my car to work. So combine all of those things together with my, uh, you know, desire over the years to, you know, someday drive a Jeep. I thought, you know, they're pretty cool. I'm not the typical off-roading guy, but I like the convertible and the manual and the basic nature of it. So yeah, nice. I, uh, I have a Jeep Wrangler. What year? It's a uh, 2017. It's oh, cool. Year old. Yeah. 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 Well, um, that's great. Oh, my tires are here. Tires. Okay. We're back. It was not my tires. It, they were not my tires. It's they another, will come. Another package. The tires need to come. Um, okay. So, uh, uh, Ryan, getting back to this, um, we were talking about your daily. So we know yeah. that you've got a Wrangler. Um, okay. So uh, also just getting to know you a bit too. These are a couple of new questions I'm asking some of my guests. Favorite thing to do on a day off? I like to go mountain biking. Mm. There aren't a lot of hills around the area here, but uh, if you go to Milton, there's uh, Kelso Conservation, mm-hmm. uh, a couple of different trails up north that you can go. So I like to, to do that. And that's part of the reason why I got the Jeep too. The bike rack fits right on the back and yeah. it's easy to, to get anywhere with it. So Totally. Yeah. Um, what about something that you're awful at? Oh boy, that's a long list. <laughs> um, boy, I, that's funny. Uh, you asked me that earlier and I thought, I'm going to have to think about that. And I forgot to think about it. It's okay. Um, <laughs> we can come back to it. All right. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's staying, staying on topic. That's something that we're awful at together. Yeah, you're we'll, right. Um, what about any automotive books, shows, podcasts, series, you know, anything uh, that you feel like anybody else should experience or something that you've been listening to or watching lately? Yeah, you know, the Chris Harris line of stuff, if nobody has been, uh, or if anybody has not been introduced to him yet, the level of professionalism, the driving skill. I just watched one of his little videos with a GT3 on the track where he's mid-drift and he grabs an upshift on the PDK. And it's, it's, if you can pick up the little things that he does, people say, oh, he just drifts around. There's way more intricacies to what he does if you pay attention, Mm -hmm. the level of skill and his, um, you know, for somebody like me that I do 
some voiceover stuff and some different things for Formula Drift on the live stream, learning the cadence, the flow, how to speak really well while being distracted. He is phenomenal at it. He can be sideways yeah. in a car at 100 miles an hour and talking to the camera and being calm. And <laughs> it's crazy. So from an inspirational standpoint, watching him do what he does is, is very helpful. Mm -hmm. um, I honestly, because I'm in the industry so much, when I listen to podcasts, I tend to listen to things that aren't cars. It's I'm in it so much that I try to get away or escape from it a little bit. So I don't have a very good, um, I guess, list of, of automotive things that I like to follow. But his videos are, are some of the things that, that really keep me interested. And uh, like I said, are inspirational for me. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Likewise, I, I also listen to a lot of non-auto content because there's only so many things that we can, I think, stay immersed in day to day uh, yeah. and, and continue to be passionate and not jaded and stuff like that. Right? Exactly. Yeah. You want to have some information. Like I read Motor Trend and Car and Driver and Road and Track. I have the, mm -hmm. you know, those three come to the house. But um, in terms of trying to not be overloaded from automotive content, I just, I keep it to those things basically. Good. I like yeah. it. Um, okay. So we are going to move into um, something very familiar to you. It's not as familiar to me, which is why I'm asking some of these questions, which are all about formula drift. Mm -hmm. So for anyone who doesn't know what formula drift is, can you give us a basic breakdown of what form of motorsport it is, where it happens, how long it's been around, that kind of stuff? Sure. So formula drift has been around for over 15 years now. There's, um, it's a, a totally U.S. encapsulated series. We used to come to Canada for one round for in Montreal, uh, but the cross-border stuff proved to be a little bit too taxing uh, financially mm. and uh, as well as um, staff-wise for a lot of the companies and teams, so we, we cut that out. Uh, so it's eight rounds in the U.S. We start off in Long Beach at the Long Beach Grand Prix course. So we're there a week before the Long Beach race. We use uh, turn, I think it's 9, 10, and 11. Okay. And uh, that is kind of the, the start of our whole season. And then we go to Atlanta, Road Atlanta. We go to Florida to a, a small little oval uh, in Orlando. Uh, we go up to uh, New Jersey. We go to Seattle. St. Louis is a new stop for us. We go to Texas and then we, uh, to Texas Motor Speedway. And then we go to um, Irwindale Speedway as well in Los Angeles for our finals. Oh, cool. So those are our eight rounds in the US. We have the pro level series and we also have the pro two series. So we have eight rounds of pro and four rounds of pro two. Okay. And uh, pro two is kind of our feeder series just above the pro-am level mm -hmm. uh, to try to get drivers prepared for the, it's pretty arduous the whole season. I, you can ex imagine the travel distances alone yeah. uh, from the cities I just mentioned, getting across the country is not easy. So uh, the four rounds of pro, uh, pro two makes it a little bit easier for them to, to do that. And then we have the Formula Drift Japan series, which is five rounds throughout Japan. And we just announced Formula Drift Korea that'll be happening in 2019. We have four rounds just north of um, uh, the, the main city, uh, what is called... Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the track and I forget it right now. It starts with a P, uh, but it's a, a, a very new facility that's just north of, I think it's Pyongyang okay. and a uh, beautiful facility that they just built. So we'll be doing four rounds there. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, wow. it is. It's going to be a new, a new, um, a new venue for us, a new, a whole new country as well uh, for Formula Drift. So drifting, of course, is cars sideways at speed. You've got different levels of, of competition. So we've got qualifying where we're uh, looking at individual cars on the track. Mm -hmm. They do two non-consecutive runs and we are judging them on three criteria, line, angle, and style. And to break that down, it's out of a hundred. So line and angle are worth 30 points each and style is 40 points. Style is comprised of fluidity and commitment. 
and those are 20 points each. Fluidity is the car's rotation on its own axis, how well the car is rotating at initiation, how quickly and how accurately. And then you have, um, all the way through the course. So all the transitions the drivers are making between different corners, mm -hmm. they've got to be quick rotations. They've got to be accurate. So they're not over rotating and having to take angle away. They're not going to too little of angle and then having to add angle. We want them to be precise. And, um, and then we're looking at the commitment side of things, which is how well the driver is using their momentum throughout the course. If you watch, and this is kind of like I said with Chris Harris, the more you get into it and the more you learn and the little intricacies you, you see, you'll learn that some drivers are able to get through a course while being very cautious and very timid, um, a little bit slower, maybe approaching uh, an object such as a wall or an edge of the track um, by braking a lot earlier and then accelerating up to that thing as opposed to using the momentum to get all the way to that very edge of control and, and edge of the track and then slowing the car down at the very last second. So what we're looking for is that level of control that makes us think that they're going to go into the wall or they're going to go sliding off the track, but then they don't. So wow. that's the excitement level we're looking for. And mm -hmm. we're looking at modifying a couple of those little things for 2019 and we're working on that now. Nothing too major, just a couple of little changes to, um, to really reward that exciting driving. And then from there, when we, when we put them into a ladder of uh, 32 drivers, we will go over to the top 32 competition, typically on Saturday. So qualifying is Friday, Saturday, we do our, our main comp and it's a typical kind of like a hockey ladder, you know, um, 32 against one. And then we go all the way down to the finals. And now we're doing head to head competition where the cars are in the lead, supposed to do what they were supposed to do in qualifying as best as they possibly can. And then the chase driver is supposed to mimic them, follow their line, their transitions, their angle, and try to stay as close as possible. That's where the exciting part of drifting comes into play. You've got these cars going 100 miles an hour, inches apart, bumping into each other, mm -hmm. riding the wall. It's <laughs> intense. It's fast-paced. And it's really, really exciting to watch, which I think is what sets it apart from other motorsports. And you're going to have people debate whether or not drifting is a motorsport or not. I think you can say that it's a motorsport. Clearly, it's not racing. We're not going against the clock. Mm -hmm. The driver's skill level is extremely high. And I think people discount that a lot. They say, oh, I used to slide my car around in the, in the parking lot in the winter. <laughs> yeah. I can do that. It's easy. Um, but it is clearly not, especially with the level of grip these guys are running. Mm -hmm. Uh, every, and ho the horsepower levels the are horsepower insane is, too, aren't it's they? It's crazy. Um, Von Gittin Jr. likes to say, we're running 10-second uh, drag cars sideways at 80, 90, 100 miles an hour inches away from each other, which is a really good way to put it. Um, it it's intense. I've, I do ride-alongs at every round mm -hmm. for the last season. Um, I get in the cars with the guys and the proximity to the walls, <laughs> the speed they're driving, the, uh, the grip levels. You can feel even in the passenger seat that the cars... They want to grip up so much and the guys are fighting to keep them sideways. That's mm -hmm. how much power, how much speed, how much grip they have. So it's pretty amazing what uh, the sport has become from where it started. Yeah. No, thank you. That's one of the most thorough descriptions I've ever had on uh, drifting. And I think that especially Formula Drift, I think everybody will really appreciate that who's listening. So, I mean, having obviously known so much about it and knowing so much about it, I mean, how did you get involved with Formula Drift? I was competing, like I said, in Canada in 2008-9 for BF Goodrich Tires. Mm -hmm. They um, ended up cutting their sponsorship, which left me on the curb, basically, uh, at the end of 2009. And I lost my, I ended up, my drift cars ended up going uh, to, uh, through a weird deal. It's partly, uh, I'm to blame for all of that, uh, <laughs> being very inexperienced 
being very young, being very trustworthy, being a lot of these different things. Gullible might be another word you could throw in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I lost my cars at the end of the season. And BF Gurdjieff said, we can put together a small budget for you for 2010 if you want. But because I lost my cars, the budget wouldn't have co- uh, covered building a car, getting all everything prepped. Um, so unfortunately, I had to bow out of competition. The next year, they they quit drifting altogether in North America. So in a way, the that happening put me on the right path because I don't know what would have happened to me if I'd done one more year. I ended up judging in 2010 in Canada. Uh, since I stopped drifting, they said, hey, why don't we use you to judge? So I judged. Uh, the DMCC series in Quebec. And then we used to bring up judges from the US, from Formula D to help us, to give us credibility, to mm-hmm. teach us. And one of them um, that came up said, hey, by the way, one of our judges is leaving next year. I like what you're doing. Do you want to come down and, and interview? Maybe you could become the new judge. So in 2011, that's what happened. I became one of the judges uh, there. And uh, since 2011, I've been judging Formula D. Um, now I've kind of taken a little more of a leadership role as the years have gone on, um, on the live stream, um, running all the driver's meetings and doing all the overseas stuff as well now. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Definitely. Definitely keeping you busy on that front. Definitely keeping me busy. (laughs) Not home very much anymore. Um, So with that, I mean, how many judges are judging an event and kind of uh, at least with Formula Drift, who are who's sitting with you in this in this judging panel? We always have three judges and that goes for anywhere that I've been in the world. There have been different people that have discussed such as the FIA. Maybe we should have five. Maybe we should have seven. Maybe we should have nine judges and wow, getting a little crazy for me. But um, mm-hmm. we always have three and the other two judges are Brian Eggert who has run many different drift events all over the US. He has his own um, amateur series, uh, US Drift. He's done Street Driven, Hyperfest. He's organized a lot and he's mm-hmm. been around drifting since I think even before FD was around like 2002, three, they were doing small stuff. Um, so he's been around forever. And then Andy Yen is, uh, the other judge. He's been there the longest out of the the three of us with yeah. FD and he used to drive in FD years ago and then transitioned from driving over to judging as well. Cool. Yeah. Um, so now, I mean, obviously in the judging side of what's happening with FD and having been involved with it for so long, you've seen a lot of cars, you've seen a lot of drivers, you've seen the sport evolving. And so when you started drifting, you started judging from then until now, what's the most significant change that you've witnessed in the sport? So that could be driver ability, that could be technology, that could be a number of things. But and we talked about it earlier, it was kind of like... Um, you know, in motocross or in motorsport, sorry, in motocross, you know, backflips first, then now they're doing rotations and backflips. And in snowboarding, it was backflip, then double backflip, then triple backflip. And these evolutions were happening at a pace that we, no one really believed that they were possible. And now it's the, now it's common ground. Um, so what have you seen in drifting that would, you know, kind of hearken to that? Since we don't have the different motions, like you're saying backflips and things mm-hmm, like that, mm-hmm. the one thing that differentiates drifting now from when it began, especially FD, if you watch videos from, on YouTube, you can find these videos from Irwindale in 2005, let's say. Okay. The distance from the wall that they're driving is, today you wouldn't even qualify with that distance from the wall. You'd be, you'd be getting a zero online because you'd be so far outside of where you should be. And then the proximity of the cars in tandem uh, back then they'd be cheering and going crazy when the cars were maybe eight, nine car lengths away. Again, if you did that today, that would be considered probably an incomplete chase from the chase driver. No kidding. No. So the level of driving skill where they're able to put their cars is unbelievable today. The way they ride a wall at 80, 90 miles an hour 
and I literally mean ride the wall, their bumper scrapes the entire way around uh, the Irwindale Bank is it's phenomenal. It, and I, I don't think people truly appreciate it watching it on the internet. You know, it, it, it takes away that the the intense, the speed, the the danger, all of that is lost. If you're there live watching it, it's pretty good. If you get yourself positioned near the track and you can see it, it's mind-blowing what these guys are able to do. Another thing I think that helped out a lot is tire technology. You know today that a lot of the supercars that we have today wouldn't be, even if they had those power levels or the technology levels of the chassis or whatever, 15, 20 years ago, the tire technology wasn't there to allow them to perform the way they're, they're performing today. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is streaming into the drifting world as well. A lot of people think drifting is you use bald tires, low grip, not the case at all. These guys are running sometimes single digit PSI in their tires um, to try to get as much grip. They're using a lot of drag racing technology and tips and tricks to get the grip that they need to put the power to the ground. So those tires are going through an extreme amount of pressure, um, heat, um, you know, trying to rip off the wheel. All of these things are going on and they still perform. They don't overheat. They don't, um, you know, we used to have tires that would chunk. The, mm-hmm. the rubber would fall off if you got them a little bit hot. I know that I've still, I've driven on tires recently to do that. You know, you're sliding around a bit and they fall apart, but the really good rubber that they're using is, and it's just street rubber. It's just ultra high performance tires. You can buy off the, the, off the shelves basically. Uh, but yeah, that's really allowing them to do things that you wouldn't expect. Von Gittin Jr. and Chelsea Denofa are doing uh, three wheels, uh, three wheel motion, they like to call it. You know, the inside wheel is lifting up the front wheel because there's so much grip. These cars are almost doing wheelies. It's, yeah. It's amazing. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. I just having, I, I, I can't remember what Instagram account I was was looking at just recently. And I noticed that a lot where it's kind of, it's totally three wheeling. Yep. Um, is there a tire manufacturer who is leading the way or um is there anybody out there that's really used drifting as a as a as a test platform um predominantly yeah some of the new brands that are coming out are doing that now like valino uh, zestino they're building tires that are specific Wanli, i think was another brand that built specific incredible tires for drifting that may have been outside the scope of legality which is why mm-hmm. some of them aren't used anymore but mm-hmm. um i think it depends what driver you talk to in fd they'll tell you and candidly now and then, I'm not going to say who and what, but now and sure. then they'll yeah. say, you know, you know, the tire that I'm using isn't that great. You know, some mm-hmm. of the other tires are better. Yeah. Um, but, um, I'm sure that's the case in any motorsport as well though, where it's like, right. well, you know, like yeah. I've got a great ride with these guys and sure there might be better tires on the market, but nobody's paying me to exactly. do this or replacing set after set after set. And exactly. like that torture test that these things go through are incredible. Yep. Yeah. We've tried to put limits on the tire usage as well. So we limit their practice laps now prior to qualifying. Mm. Um, and that limits the amount of tires that brands have to bring with them to the, the to the events. Like for, for instance, uh, I can show you a picture of the, the Hankook tire trailer. It's a full 52 foot trailer with the awning off of it. And it's stacked probably eight tires high the whole thing from trailer to the end of the awning wow it's that's all the tires for one weekend for their team i don't even know how many tires would be in there i'd have to count you know the stacks but yeah it's incredible what they bring to to an event yeah it's wild. I mean, and when we talk about kind of regulation and um, standardization, we'd, we'd talked about the FIA a little bit earlier. And for those listening, so governing body for the majority of motorsports across the globe, mm-hmm. um, Federation International uh, L'Automobile. You got it. Um, and 
you know, you've been involved with them in a, in a, you know, I'll, I'll let you explain the capa- in what capacity, but what kind of, what is it, what are you doing with them and what is it that they, what interest do they have in drifting or what, what interest do you have in them from a drifting perspective? They got interested in drifting maybe three years ago. They started approaching organizers of drift events internationally. And eventually Jim Lau from Formula D got involved in their working group, they call it. They have people from all over Europe, Asia, um, the Middle East, US, really uh, Scandinavian countries, I think, Baltic states. They're, they're all, all of these people that have an interest in what FIA is going to be doing with drifting because it's going to affect them directly. Mm-hmm. FIA has a lot of control, in, especially in Europe and Asia, with uh, how motorsports are going to be run on specific tracks that are FIA-sanctioned tracks. Okay. So you need to be running their rules. You have to play by their, by their rules, essentially, um, to be able to be uh, even holding these events at all. Sometimes they'll say, you can't hold an event here because you're not FIA-certified, let's say. Uh, so these, all these different entities, these different series, these different ASNs all have a vested interest in, in making sure they have input in what the FIA does with drifting. Now I'm going to say that I believe the FIA, they, everybody that works there, they have the best of intentions. I, I, I don't think any of the blame can be put on the FIA staff for any shortcomings with the events that have been, have been held in the drifting side of things. I have never been involved in something so bureaucratic and um, (laughs) political. Uh, It's very hard to maneuver all of it. But when I got involved, they wanted me uh, to talk to them about judging. What kind of judging rules would be the best to bring into the sport to make their event kind of the pinnacle event of drifting. And despite the advancements that we've made in FD and we make changes every year, I believe personally, I'm not saying this because I think because I'm involved, it's the best, but I believe Formula Drift is the best drift event in the world. And a lot of people agree with me on that. Um, The most forward thinking, we really don't get hung up on something because we invested time or energy in it. If it doesn't work, we move on. Mm -hmm. And we're going to always be advancing our judging regulations, our sporting regulations, everything that we can to make it fair and to make it open for everybody. So I was bringing that to the table, I thought. And, um, by bringing our experience, our advanced, um, level of, um, of, uh, progression, let's say in the judging side of things, we kind of fast forwarded through a lot of different methods and, 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 uh, different judging styles. Mm-hmm. So I kind of thought I have, uh, a nice advantage for you guys here at the FIA. I'm going to fast forward you through all that BS that we've already done that we know doesn't work. And I'm going to give you what works now. And that at least it'll start you off at the forefront right now. But unfortunately, people that are involved in the group will vote things down, will vote for things that will benefit them personally or their series individually. And that brings down the level of anything that we're trying to do. And it's really unfortunate. And again, I don't blame the FIA people for this at all because they don't know what they don't know. They don't know much about drifting. Of course. They're bringing in the experts. And unfortunately, some of the experts that, you know, I'm using quotation marks here, um, they are in a position where they have very little to no experience, but because they're there as a representative of their country, their ASN, their vote counts equally. And um, I'm not saying I'm the best, I'm the most professional, but I'm just saying where I'm coming from, we have a lot of experience that we can really bring to the table and it's not really being um, used in the way that it can be. Now, uh, the other 
side of things is D1's involved because they, they're the ones that won the bid for uh, the FI event for three years. And they use DOS, which is a completely computerized judging system, Okay, which is very controversial. Most of the drivers that I've talked to that have competed with it hate it. They make it work. They will ju- they'll drive in a way that will make them win or try to get the best score. It's very difficult to even know why you got a score for certain things because it's just a computer printout with numbers on it. Wow. So, so they, I mean, they're, they're learning how to engineer or kind of game the system exactly. based on the scoring criteria. Yeah. And they don't okay. judge line with DOS at all. So you can go wherever you want on the track. So it's just uh, speed, rotation and angle, uh, rotation to angle. Um, and then there are a couple of areas on the track that aren't judged at all where you're allowed to correct your angle and do weird things. So hmm. from our perspective, that's not the ideal way to do it. And um, we've been fighting with uh, the, the D1 guys to try to remove it. This year we removed it. It was awesome. We made progression. I was really happy about that. Um, but there are other th- little things that made it not perfect, uh, but we're working towards perfecting those things. So they're starting a commission very soon instead of having working groups. So the commission will have power to vote on things indiv- independently. Right now, um, like the meetings I've gone to at the FIA in Paris, we put together a proposal with our ideas, which is a big debate, trying to figure everything out, come to a, uh, an agreement on certain things. Then the FIA will take that to the uh, World Sporting Commission, and then they have to vote on it, but they only meet, I think, quarterly. Okay, yeah. So it's a slow process to get things voted on. And then once it gets approved from there, then we're allowed to say, yes, we can implement it. Then you have to figure out how to implement it. And then that's where the hard part comes in of trying to, um, you know, things that I didn't think should be in there that got pushed in. Now it's on me because I'm one of the judges that's there to try to figure out how to implement a rule that I didn't even want in place in the first place. Oh, wow. That's a pretty awkward position. Yeah, it is. Some of the things um, we had to fight through, but uh, that's the the level of of bureaucracy that's involved in a big uh, industry like that with so many different people involved. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm sure you know the benefit of having a small group. Of course, yeah. Like-minded people. And yeah. it's not necessarily that you're going to confirm your own biases, but you're going to know what it is that your goal is and how to get to it as opposed to have a bunch of people that maybe don't know what they're talking about trying to, to run the, the, the whole thing. Now, I, I might sound negative with all of this. There are some amazing people that are involved that are really trying their hardest and um, making an effort and I appreciate what they're doing. Um, we just have to get more of us together to work harder on that. Yeah, that may, I mean, it makes sense. And it, it sounds like it sounds like it's still progress, slow progress. Um, having that discussion with them in the first place, I think is a good, is a good uh, a mark on, on, on the sports legitimacy as well globally, which has to feel a bit, you know, good. I, I definitely agree with you. The smaller, more nimble groups are the ones that I like to work within or if I have the choice to. And I find that you also then get a chance to test and the testing is the big part like you said with um with formula drift um you're able to you know you're implementing new things every year and you're like well that didn't work last year so we'll just scrap it and we'll try something new i think with the fia because of the bureaucracy those things you know it might be five years before they could change something again right we know everybody sitting there we know that this needs to change but mm-hmm. they say this isn't the way it's done it has to go through the approval steps yeah, this is how it's all the so, channels yeah it, it slows things down but oh. luckily right now the events are annual so we have time in between each one to get that done 
And that's what it is. It's every, every time we have a meeting, it's working through. If I go to the FIA or I call in and, you know, try to talk over everybody mm-hmm. when they're, uh, uh, you know, through a, a, a voice call, it's not easy, but uh, yeah. you try to get your ideas across as much as you can. So, yeah. well, I wish you the best of luck and I'm well, sure that, um, everybody in the, uh, in the entire drift scene, I mean, let alone the motorsport world are, uh, are, are behind you on it. Um, and it sounds like, I mean, from our conversation, from, from what I know about you, um, you're the right person to be there as an ambassador for the sport too. Well, so, thank you. um, I, I mean, and, and talking about that in terms of the sport, its progression, what's happening with the FIA in terms of popularity, because I don't really have my, you know, thumb on the pulse necessarily. I mean, I, the, the guys from Drift, Drift Jam are great. And I love seeing this kind of grassroots side of total jam session formats and, um, and some great drivers and cool cars and all the things that I love about it you have a, obviously a much bigger view to what's happening in North America. And so I'm interested, you know, has the sport gained in popularity? Has it plateaued? You know, where does it sit in terms of, you know, in your mind, um, as a, as a motorsport, as, you know, it's, it's highly entertaining. Um, but then also has its roots in Japan. Um, you know, understanding what's happening there, is it getting more popular? Is it, is Japan less popular? Like how, how does it all play out in your mind? Well, right now I'm getting more and more, interest from around the world to come help with judging, to come help with their series. Um, I go regularly to Brazil. I've been to Peru. I just got asked to go to Iran in February. Um, So some places where you wouldn't expect. The FIA, we had drivers from uh, Mozambique competing. So some countries that are outside of the scope of what you would normally expect a drift driver to be from. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that drifting is growing because of how quick and easy it is to to take in right anybody can go to a drift event and the runs are quick and short you can see all the action you're not missing what happened on the back you know corners yeah three and four that are away you know really spectator friendly yeah it's super spectator friendly so it depends on what part of the world you're in um the level of excitement from the fans doesn't change wherever you go generally the only thing that i would say about japan is everybody's very demure and very quiet and very respectful they don't get wild and crazy like they do in the US, but you still have a high level of interest from people coming. Formula Drift Japan is growing every year. Uh, more and more people, more sponsors, more drivers. The driver list there just gets higher and higher every year. Uh, Formula Drift US, we sell out, I think every round, you know, there's oh, especially wow. like Irwindale and Long Beach, you can't find a place to sit. Um, New Jersey sells out, Florida, I think sells out. Yeah, I think they pretty much all do. It's, it's very impressive in terms of the people that come, uh, to watch the events in, um, South America, it's growing as well. They don't have the resources necessarily there to make the biggest events with the, the best cars and the best drivers, but they're doing an amazing job with what they have of putting together these, uh, these great events and using our blueprint. So that's why they bring me down, you know, Hey, can you teach us how to do this in a way that is cost effective and makes the fans interested and is fair for everybody. So, um, that is the growth just from my side, watching the interest of different other different series, getting in touch with me, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Russia, the Baltic States, um, Scandinavia, uh, I was, you know, asked to do some European judging next season as well. And it just doesn't stop. It's it's really uh, a matter of running out of weekends throughout the summer. That's the hard part. Um, so the level of interest, really, really high. I think it's still growing. I don't know where it's going to end. Yeah, right. You know, people still seem to be uh, interested in seeing more and more of it. Teams are building new cars that, like the technology now, 
Um, people are talking about electric, mm-hmm. which is yeah, really that's... getting interesting. We might even have, I don't know, next season, there are rumors we might have uh, electric cars next season competing. So Wild. Um, yeah. with the automotive technology as it's changing, you know, um, I think a couple of drivers tested a BMW last season, this season passed. It had uh, Chrysler Pacifica battery packs because they're just the right size, right? Um, because the hybrid Pacifica is a mild hybrid. It's not a full, so mm-hmm. the battery packs aren't huge. Yep. Uh, they're pretty lightweight and packaging uh, size is right. And then they would use Tesla motors in this BMW to make a, a drift car that could actually function. They put a handbrake in it. And apparently it was fantastic to drive. The power delivery, the torque. Um, I know rev range sounds stupid to say with an electric car, but the throttle... Um, I guess the throttle travel that they had, I guess would be a better way to put it. Okay. Um, it was very useful for drifting as well. So the only thing they don't have is a clutch. I don't know how they'd work that out, but I'm sure they can work around that somehow. Right. Yeah. So like fan involvement, technology involvement, company involvement that are coming into the, the series. Uh, it's, it's really impressive to see. I didn't expect this. Um, like you said at the beginning, I'm a precision driver. That was my main job when I started doing this drifting stuff and drifting was a couple of weekends a year, I'd go do a a judging, judging an event. Now it's to the point where I'm judging so much, doing so many drift events. I don't have time to do a lot of driving anymore, uh, driving events. So it's completely shifted my whole career, uh, just because of this, the popularity of the sport. That's really exciting. I mean, that obviously bodes well for, you know, the sport, but also for your career and how busy it's keeping you. I mean, you know what? It's funny because I I, want to get to uh, the precision driving side. I know we're kind of running out of time on Mm -hmm. this, but why don't we just, why don't we kick into it quickly? Um, And you can give me some rapid fire um, because so... um, precision driving mm-hmm. what kind of precision driving do you do i mean and for for who where like what kind of events are, are, are these or what kind of you know gigs are they it's a really wide range of different events that i uh, have done in the past um the most recent stuff i've done is for ferrari we do uh, road rallies for them driving events uh aston martin uh did some on ice stuff with them as well uh some customer delivery you know where you'll bring a car to the house and they can you know real one-on-one specific stuff oh, cool with wow. uh cars that maybe aren't on the market yet that they want to see potentially buy uh that's been the more exciting stuff uh then you know doing um, um track stuff with mazda uh, training for their staff um exciting events for them and then uh trying to get into the 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 stunt driving side of things the movie the tv the commercial um it's been really tough as well but it's something that i'm still pursuing uh the skills that i have and that i've used i have done some shoots i have been on some some uh some driving shoots where you know you're you're working with a a russian arm and Mm -hmm. you're driving up and you're listening to the director's cues that for me is some of the most rewarding and most fun stuff that i get to do I don't get to do it enough, unfortunately, mm-hmm. but, um, for all know. those listening out there, when you've got gigs, you yeah. got, you got to call Ryan, call Ryan up. Um, <laughs> but just being around cars for me, I think like you as well, the passion that you have and getting to drive other people's cars is that's the best because you get to, uh, beat on them just a little bit more yeah. than you would your own. Yeah. Right? Um, but I think the best part for me is getting to do that with somebody in the car that it blows their mind. You know, you're sliding around a car, even if it's on a little enclosed track in a parking lot, it, it's something that I love the the feedback that I get from people and then <laughs> teaching them maybe how to do that themselves. Yeah. 
showing them that they can do it too. Um, a little uh, winter driving stuff is so vital in Canada, as you know. And I think that the, the training is so low for that. Yeah. I think that a little bit more training, a little bit more practice, people would be way more prepared for bad weather when they get involved in it. Yeah. And it would reduce a lot of the, the accidents that we have. It's just situations where people aren't prepared. They don't know what to do. They panic, they freeze, and they end up in the ditch or into the back of another car or whatever it might be. Um, Those things could be completely avoided just with some practice. Yeah. Trying to get people accustomed to what they should do so that they're not thinking about what they're going to do. By then it's too late, right? Yeah, exactly. Second nature. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, I think that training, training, you know, doing air quotes again, uh, is non-existent in Canada for most drivers. And I still, uh, when it snows, I'll still go out and just test the limits again at the beginning of the season, just to remind myself what right. it's like Get being comfortable on, with it, right? on yeah. ice and snow again. But um, that's great. No, I, I, I appreciate that because I think that there aren't enough people actually behind that in Canada uh, being, uh, again, ambassadors for proper driving. Yeah. Um, and you know what? I think what we'll do is... Um, I'd love to have you back to talk just specifically about precision driving too. And hopefully you'll come back for another show for that. Absolutely. Um, but before we go, I mean, what's on the horizon for you in 2019? Is there anything that we should be on the lookout for or anything big coming up or anything to watch out for that you're directly involved in or you think anybody listening would be interested in? Well, I think the biggest thing is Formula Drift for me. Um, going to Korea is a really big uh, a really big step for FD. Yeah. Um, I, they're looking at uh, a whole new series of, of drivers, new track, new fans, new everything. Um, but I think just the, the growth of drifting in general, um, if you follow any of my, my social media accounts, Instagram especially, mm-hmm. um, I'm always posting from different countries that I'm in the different cars that are there, which is really fascinating to some people, to, to me especially, uh, because these cars we don't have. And yeah. people aren't used to seeing them drifting. You know, like in Brazil, the Chevette, small little, you know, it's rear-wheel drive. It's kind <laughs> of like awesome. the Brazilian AE86. Totally. You know, solid rear axle. But that was my that was my field car, was a Chevette. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> but they're a little bit different down there, right? Because yeah, it's based are. on the Opal. Yeah. And, um, so yeah, that that's a big thing for me is seeing the different cultures around the world, the different uh, way that they approach the same sport. Because it's the same thing at, at its base, but mm-hmm. um, just the way that different cultures, different people, um, and different series are going to approach that uh, is what I really like to see and experience. So um, yeah, keep keep an eye on my account, I guess, if you want to see yeah. weird cars and uh, <laughs> the different drivers and tracks around the world. And tell everybody what that account is, where they can find you. So on uh, Instagram, it's Lontang, L-A-W-N-T-A-N-G. So that's how you pronounce my last name. Yep. Lon like the front lawn and Tang like the juice. <laughs> uh, so that's basically where I post everything. Um, Facebook to a lesser extent, um, a little bit more personal, I guess. But um, Instagram is always uh, trying to promote whoever I'm there working for nice. uh, to give people a, a better idea of what they're up to cool. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, I mean, I found Ryan on another great podcast called Maximum Driftcast. And if you guys want to go down the rabbit hole of of the kind of the inner workings of what's happening in the drift community around the world, um, you're on the show every once in a while with those guys. Um, It's um, they interview drifters all the time from different parts of the world. So it's pretty exciting to see what they're involved in because they tap into more of the underground sometimes. You know, they will talk to FD drivers and they will talk to the organizers of FD. Yeah. But they also get 
guys that aren't known yet, you know, people that are running more of the pro-am side of things. So it's very interesting to hear what they have to talk about. Totally. I mean, and shout out to those guys. I love the show. They do a great job of it. Um, But like I said, uh, check them out if you want to get heavy down into the drift world. Uh, It's highly enjoyable. Um, But that's it for us uh, today. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thank you for Um, having me. You know, uh, for me, you know, make sure that you continue to listen, rate, review, subscribe to the show. Uh, you can find me all over the web at the bucket seat on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and keep emailing me with all of your great feedback and episode suggestions at Trevor at the So thanks again, everyone for listening. Ryan, it's been awesome. Hope to have you back on the show. I look uh, forward to it. And uh, we'll be talking to everybody soon again. So stay tuned. Cheers. Mm-hmm.